Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get after it and try to cover all the energy stuff in 10 minutes because they're new pages. So every energy page is up to speed, but there's also a lot of other news on chips and software and, and biotech. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Topmark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager who truly understands the dynamics of the market and how to deliver impressive returns, Visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. The price of oil, which has gotten to $90 for WTI, is a supply-driven situation, not a demand-driven situation. And that surplus capacity of 4 million barrels a day is there because the Saudis and the Abu Dhabi part of the United Arab Emirates have decided not to produce or to forego producing. Without that commitment by those two countries, the price of oil would be $60 or $70. So it's a little vulnerable. And you can see that in the next page, on from the back, Exhibit B. Uh, last Friday, the price was 88 You get out to... Uh, 24, it's 81, and 25, it's 75. So it's pretty steeply backwardated. While oils behave great, not so great for gas, gas has been holding in the 350 range for next year, but that's not really what we're all looking for. We're looking for something more than that. But it's, it's there that we don't have an OPEC for gas supply, and gas supply has continued to build. And while LNG goes up by a billion, half or two billion per day per year, supply goes up by more than that. Exhibit A, you want to keep close at hand as the two sides struggle over whether or not to have a continued resolution so the government can pay its bills after September 30. Just to give you an idea on Exhibit A, the amount of spending on things other than Medicare, Medicaid, pension, Social Security, defense, interest, in 2019 was $910 billion. That's pre-COVID, and it's now a trillion four. So that's $500 million. The amount they're fighting over is around $100 billion, which is only 20% of that increase of $500 billion. So they're going to be firing salvos at each other and and looking to get political advantage, and they're only dealing with 20% of the problems, any kind of reason, analysis of it. With that, let's switch to 
the largest of the energy companies is on page nine. Here we have Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, Oxy, and Chenier. Exxon and Chevron are still fully integrated with refineries and marketing and whatnot. Conoco and Oxy are just upstream, and Chenier is the largest, our largest LNG exporter. Off the numbers, you'd say, oh boy, Chenier looks like a deal at enterprise value times free cash flow. I, I caution that, that that is really difficult. I think the free cash flow is $8 billion, but oh my goodness, they do a lot of hedging when they buy gas for their LNG customers. And it, I, you know, I, I'd be much more confident in that number as each quarter goes by. As far as Exxon and Chevron, they're both trading at 10 and 12 times free cash flow. I'm pretty confident in those numbers. And those numbers are as of the first half of the year. Conoco and is considerably more expensive at 17 times free cash flow. And Oxy, which is Berkshire Hathaway's favorite upstream stock, does look a little cheap relative to, I mean, if you can buy upstream only at the same time free cash flow as, as Exxon's trading for, that would seem to be cheap. Now, why would Oxy <clears throat> trade for lower? They, as they have a lot more debt, relatively speaking. And they've used free cash flow to pay down debt, but they still have a lot more debt than Exxon, Chevron, or Conoco did. And generally, debt doesn't work in, in the energy business. The next page is page 10. Here we have the midstream companies. Here, you can see the debt is really holding them back. When we get to the upstream companies, you'll see we've had a lot of pay down of debt. And in some cases, there's no debt or there's more cash than debt. These midstream companies just can't do that because they have big interest payments and then they have distributions that they're committed to. So their dividend, they're, they seem to be trading at pretty high multiples. Uh, in Kinder's case and Enterprise's case, 17 times free cash flow and Western at 14 times. Energy transfer is <clears throat> always trades at a discount because they are very active acquisitor. And if you get an energy transfer, 10K or 10Q or, or earnings slide for one of their quarterly earnings meetings, it's a real mishmash. I mean, it's just everywhere. Kelsey Warren, who's the founder there, I think has never seen anything he didn't want to buy. And so they're, they're, they're nowhere near as strategically structured as say Kinder Enterprise. We turn one more page. We get to the what I call oil upstream companies. And Permian's a, a new company, and it's hard to figure out because they merged into a public entity, and oh, it's around 12 times free cash flow. EOG, which I think is the best of the largest independents, is 11 times free cash flow. Magnolia, which has done remarkably well, it's about, you know, as you can see, it's like 10% of the size of EOG. But they've done remarkably well operating only in the chalk, which you know generally got a bad reputation. Diamondback is probably a better comparison for EOG, and they're also about 10 times free cash flow. One of the interesting things here is if you look at them, their free cash flow in, in EOG is six billion dollars, and their capex is five, so they're really spending half of their cash flow. But 
you know, for Magnolia, much smaller, 400 million capex, 400 million free cash flow. Permian is a little bit more in for a higher percentage capex, 1.2 and 8. But look at Diamondback, 2.8 and 3.2. And then look at the increase in production. EOG has 5% increase in production, which is remarkable considering they're only spending half their cash flow. Magnolia has 10%, but look at Diamondback at 20%. Those three companies are really performing at kind of a very high level. Page 12, we get these are gas companies, Antero, UT, Chesapeake, and, and Antero Midstream is on here because it's a third owned by Antero, but you can see it's, it's really the same business. It's run by the same management, but you can compare what a midstream company doing on the same counties, the same business, how it looks as compared to its upstream cousin. These companies are trading at 15 times free cash flow with gas at $3. And gas will average about $3. So built into their, their valuation is the expectation that gas will be better than $3. In terms of CapEx, they all are are spending a little more than half of their cash flow, as you can see by comparing their CapEx to their free cash flow. But another 50 cents, if you just take Antero, for example, you know how much 50 cents means. They produce 3.4 bees a day of gas, 50 cents, that's, that's a trillion a year. 50 cents is, is going to increase that free cash flow of 600 million to a billion one. So, because it'll just, other than income tax, it'll just come down to the free cash flow line. So, so that is basically what people who own gas stocks are, are uh, expecting to happen. So, with that, let's switch back to page one. And we have a various events that we want to we wanna cover. I would say, just going to page one, we want to talk about the uh, iPhone 15 launch, which happened uh, yesterday, I guess. And it looks to me, just from newspaper accounts, that the iPhone 15 isn't a whole heck of a lot different than the iPhone 14. But over to you, Mike, for or Jason, for your commentary on that. Jason, did you watch the keynote? I did watch it. And my impression was the same as, as the iPhone is largely, especially the iPhone Pro is, is largely the same as last year's model. It has a updated processor. The camera has a better zoom feature, but really the only material change is they swapped the Apple's proprietary lightning port for a USB-C charger. And then the net effect that to, of that for the typical consumer is you're going to have to go out and buy a whole new set of chargers for your home office car everywhere else. But other than that, I don't see much innovation happening on the iPhone side. Yeah. I think the European regulators are trumpeting that as a victory, but it was actually widely believed that Apple was going to switch to USB-C anyways. Mm. So they, they did for their, for their laptops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. The watch side is way more interesting. The watch is where all of the innovation came from. So two big things came out of that, and they're both related to AI, is they've managed to fit an updated neural engine chip into the watch. And then the effect of this is they're able to package a Siri AI model into the watch itself rather than in the data center. So your watch can interact 
with you through voice commands while it's not connected to the internet. And it also shifts the economics of running these AI models to the edge device, which is something we've talked about in the past. And now Apple, Apple's not processing all these requests in their data center. Saves them all that CapEx for building the data center, the electricity fees, you know, all, all, all that that goes with it. And then an, the second thing to come out of the advancement in the neural engine chip is they have this new finger tap feature. So you can interact with the watch by tapping two fingers together, which is kind of interesting and novel. And between Siri and the finger tap, it's a whole new way of interacting with a mobile device, essentially hands-free. You're not touching the device, but tapping fingers together. It, it sounds like a lot of the technology from the Vision Pro is being brought in. Yeah, that's what it looks like they're kind of lining up for, is, is that's you know, the hand interacting, the gestures and, and that kind of thing. And also the new iPhone Pro Max, yeah. it's able to shoot video that will then be displayed in their Vision Pro. Oh, that's pretty cool. We've been talking yeah. about a model like baked onto the phone. Mm-hmm. We hadn't really considered that it would end up being baked onto the watch first. Right, right. I didn't. Jason, what about, Jason, what about their renewal of their deal with Qualcomm? seemed kind of unanticipated certainly was created as good news by qualcomm stockholders yeah they've they've had a lot of success with their cpus designing those in-house and they're they're probably the best mobile processors out there but they're really struggling to build this modem so they they bought the business from intel years ago and then they've been threatening that they're going to drop qualcomm since then but they've been unable to produce a modem that has the, the same capabilities. It's not necessarily that they can't produce it. They can't produce it without infringing on Qualcomm's IP. Mm. So I thought they settled that, no? I don't totally know. They may still have to pay license fees based on what they've been able to develop internally. We did talk a little bit about how Apple's program may never actually have the intent <laughs> of producing their own chips, but by not having it, they would then be f- subject to whatever Qualcomm want so to charge. A, the, the threat of... Yes, it's a game theory leverage. kind of thing. It's like <laughs> you have this whole unit and business unit of people preparing just in case, you know, they can't get something together with, with Qualcomm. Yeah. While we're on that, we, we, we better switch over to the ARM IPO and how ARM is, what chance ARM has of trying to charge more for its, its chip designs in order to justify the valuation that is being paid, put on ARM in the IPOs. Yeah, it, it's a tall order to say that all, all these strategic investors in the IPO, we're going to completely rip out the business model that we've done with you for a long period of time and essentially charge you more money for what you're currently getting. We've discussed this before. Part of the problem is is that the largest users of ARM services pay the least. So any would-be competitor is at a significant disadvantage if they want to build a, a high-volume chip. So nobody wants them to do that. <laughs> and they tried with Qualcomm. Yeah. <laughs> and... It ended up in a big fight, and the outcome of that was Qualcomm announced they have a new division that's going to investigate Risk Five, which is the open source competitor to ARM. 
So they're investigating that for new chip designs and not just Qualcomm, but Google announced that as well, seeing that, you know, if ARM's going to treat Qualcomm, which is, I think, their best customer, if they're going to treat them that way, you know, what are they going to do to Google? Right. And remember, just for everyone on the phone and for all of us, NVIDIA had a deal to buy ARM uh, and was defeated by antitrust objections like four different continents. I mean, they China, U.S., U.K., European Union, and they finally just gave up. But with that, I know this is, seems kind of rapid fire, but we'll we'll expound on all this in future Wednesdays. But the Google trial started this week, and Mike, maybe because he's married to a litigator, of course, <laughs> probably a little more a little more time ready to complain. I asked Mike. I said, "What does this mean for Google stockholders?" That, and he quickly said, "Not just Google stockholders, but also Apple stockholders." But over over to you, Mike. Right. So this particular case, and there are multiple cases, so that's an important thing to keep in mind here. This one is all about the deal that they have with Apple where they pay a fee in order to be the default search engine. The lawmakers don't really like that because it's they see it as anti-competitive. Although in reality it's up to Apple to charge they could they could hold a bidding um, you know a contest and whoever has the highest bid they could there's no reason they couldn't do that. It certainly is a big advantage for them if anything comes out of this. It would likely be that Apple gets less revenue and Google has to pay less and still ends up the default search. So it's actually, this one in particular is sort of a, uh, I, I don't see much that could go really wrong for Google. I should mention I'm not a litigator and <laughs> Kellen doesn't endorse anything that I'm saying here. So, <laughs> And then Jason, so uh, I think this is your area of expertise. Morgan Stanley came out with a positive view of Tesla based on their supercomputer, whatever whatever you call the advance, and its impact on uh, on everything, not just hands-off driving. Do you, do you think as a Tesla stockholder, it's, it's uh, I, I mean, it can't, be a, it can't be a negative, but how much of a net plus to, you know, this announcement about their, uh, their advances in, uh, in computing? Yeah, I, I only read the headline and not their report, but... It seems kind of odd to me how they're going to drive extra value beyond training self-driving models for them internally. Maybe it's getting at their ambitions with a, with a robot, and that certainly could be a huge revenue driver for them. But yeah, the supercomputer itself, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think they have any intention of, of allowing anyone else to, to use it for different modeling. I think they have enough workload to, to use it 100% of the time. What, what I would add is the, the thing that they're doing that is unique is they're the only one essentially building a foundational model based on video data. And the little bit that we understand about these large language models is that they seem to be applicable across various forms, if that makes sense. So we may find that the Tesla model has more use cases than we think it does. And we may also find that the large language models that are based on text have more use cases than we think they do. Right. Right. We promised last week to spend more time on page 15, biotech, and of course the uh, Moderna 
Pfizer, BioNTech vaccines were released this week, we have kind of an estimate, I would say discounted, for what those vaccines are going to be able to do over the next 12 months. You can see, if you look at page 19, look at Pfizer, their revenues for the six months is off $22 billion. BioNTech's revenue was off $9 billion. And Moderna's revenue was off 8.6. So the question, I guess, I mean, Pfizer has lots of other products and probably should be put aside. You either, you either like Pfizer or you don't. For Moderna and BioNTech, where, you know, we kind of think well, all that technology they have was being devoted to trying to come up with cancer medicines. And then COVID happened and those two were able to develop in you know, record time COVID vaccine. But do you think, do you, Jason, do you think that the, the any lift, in, it, uh, in other words, will they continue to have cash flow from their COVID vaccine to support their research effort? Or will they have to run their research effort out of cash on hand, which is considerable? And Moderna, it's, you know, $9 billion. And then Biontech, it's $18 billion. Or how, how does it look to you, Jason? I fully expect they'll start running it out of cash on hand. I, I think Moderna's starting to realize that they, along with the FDA's approval and the CDC's recommendation that everyone should get the COVID vaccine or the booster, I should say, um, Moderna themselves announced that they're going to scale back booster production. So they're not anticipating the demand that they once had. I think there's a little bit of fatigue. You know, it's, well, I think the endorsement is for your fifth booster at this point or your fifth total shot. You know, I, I don't expect the demand's going to be there. And, and Moderna has $1 billion in free cash flow. You know, I, if their sales take a 10% hit, that's all going to dry up. Wow. Yeah, I see it as like the total addressable market is basically shrinking, right? Right. The population that's going to get the additional boosters are generally people that are at risk. So it's elderly or people with other complicating factors that it would benefit them to have extra protection. For the rest of the population, our immune systems are sufficient. Yeah, I mean, I think we've both had it twice by now. No, easily. Yeah. <laughs> and the second time was a, a lot less impactful. Mm-hmm. So right. I, I don't see myself getting a booster. It's, yeah. But yeah. I've seen some measures that say the, the percentage of the population that maybe should or are actually recommended based on age and or complicating health factors is as high as 17%, which seems pretty high to me. But it's still a question as to the uptake because it's not going to be just walk in and get it for free anymore. It's going to be through your insurance. And if you don't have insurance, you can jump through these hoops and supposedly the government's going to pay for it. Yeah, and I've heard the insurers are balking at paying unless you're in the higher risk camp. Yeah. That will, that will be interesting, yeah. No, Jason and Mike, this is a crude way of looking at it, but if you look at this sheet and Moderna has, say, $9 billion of cash on hand and a $3 billion R&D budget, uh, that's uh, three years. You look at BioNTech, has $18 billion of cash on hand and a billion three R&D budget quite a few more years without spending a, a great deal of time trying to judge where they stand on their inventory of medicines coming along. Do you just kind of prefer biotech because you've got more years to 
finance R&D without a contribution from revenue as the COVID vaccine just doesn't produce much in the way of cash flow going forward. Yeah, I'd say all else equal. Yeah, and I, I kind of actually prefer Biontech's pipeline as well. I, I, I was, that was my next point is like, all else equal doesn't really matter because everything that matters in these companies is the science. And it, some of this is pretty hard to come to conclusions on, which is why if you look at yeah funds that trade exclusively in biotech, most of them are PhDs. Right, right. Right. And then there are two companies here, in addition to Pfizer, that do have free cash flow after their R&D where they're, you know, some, some, of their, some of their revenue may be vulnerable to getting close to patent expiration stuff. But Lanthus and Vertex, you know, do have free cash flow. I continue to be, just from a financial point of view, compressed with Vertex because they have $11 billion of cash, which is more than Moderna's cash. And they made that cash. They, that didn't come up from a financier or anything. That's accumulated over time. So maybe the, the one criticism that I had, I guess, of Vertex is that there's this, that they principal source revenues of medicine for cystic fibrosis. And it's incredibly expensive for the patients or their insurers or whatnot to pay for. But Jason, how, how, how do you size up the probability of Vertex being able to continue to, to run, you know, a significant amount of free cash flow over the next several years. I think it's, I think it's highly likely. Vertex has been really aggressive in developing those cystic fibrosis treatments, and due to that, you mentioned their patent cliff. They're, I don't think their patent cliff expires until the mid twenty thirties, and because they they were aggressive in their development, they've pushed out all their competitors. So. There's a couple of treatments from smaller biotechs that are in phase one that would be competitive, uh, but you know, the, being being there, that's seven eight years out from from uh, reaching market. So their cash flow is, is pretty safe, and then they've got two and possibly three big things coming up in the near term that could be big catalysts for them. Right, and then Mike. Lanthius is down 20 points or so, and but the interim results look pretty strong. I mean, they're having a little more trouble bringing it down to free cash flow, but still, you know, pretty significant increase in sales. How do, how do you assess Lanthius at this point? Yeah, we think that there's a bit of misperception in the market as to how competitive their primary market is. So I, I think they're in a pretty good position because the alternative, not to get too far in the weeds, would require a biopsy to confirm a positive diagnosis. And that's based on FDA's labeling. Right. It just wouldn't make sense for a doctor to switch to a different product. So from that perspective, we're pretty happy with where things are. Obviously, they are spending a little more aggressively, and part of that is just these other trials that they're, they're running and involved with. So upside's definitely there. I'd add that bo- both of those companies are running late stage trials, which are much more expensive than the earlier smaller scale phase ones and, and such. So the expenses they're running and incurring on those phase three trials are, are pretty big right now. Of the two, or, or even, I guess, BioNTech and, and Moderna, not knowing a whole heck of a lot about this, except what I've been able to pick up recently, 
I kind of like the uh, the pain medication at Vertex, the alternative to opioids seems to me to you know have a huge potential market and and also you know do do a do an awful lot for people who are and uh, areas of the country and, and areas of population that have really suffered from opioid abuse. And why don't we cl- conclude, Jason, if you could just explain that, I know you've done it before, but as long as we're talking about this particular trial, the way Jason's explained it in the past, opioid is kind of adding things, you know, into your, uh, where the, this this product will, would actually cut off the capability of the nerve to uh, to uh, cause pain. I, now that I bollocks it all up, Jason will straighten this out. <laughs> No, at a high level, you know, the, the opioids act within the brain to mask your pain signals. And Vertex's small molecule essentially shuts off the nervous system's pathway of sending the pain from the pain signal from wherever in your body to your brain. So it doesn't act within the brain at all. And thus, they believe that that eliminates the risk of it being an addictive substance. And we'll we'll carve out more time next week for uh, for the biotech stocks. Take care, everyone. Be well and stay healthy. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable. Neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 